Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hi. So today on the Loopcast, I have Davi Ottenheimer, and we are talking about the ethics of machine learning. Um, so part of this conversation, uh, we wanted to have this conversation because um, a lot of the topics that we'll be talking about today have come up in the election, have come up um, a great deal in the last um, two, three years. And um, while the technical side of it is sort of known and, and to a degree publicly understood, um, the should and, and sort of should we be doing this um, is a little less analyzed and, and sort of examined. So we wanted to have this conversation with somebody who is not only a practitioner in the field, but also somebody who has sort of thought about this. So uh, with me, welcome uh, Davi Ottenheimer, and we're going to jump into it. So I want to start off with um, sort of a, 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 a general question, which is, how do you go about creating an ethical model um, for machine learning, for um, so-called big data? What do you, what goes into your thinking? What goes into sort of what should be examined and what should be included in this model or not included in the model? Well, it's a huge topic, and I have lately been thinking along the lines of history because I do like to study a lot of history to, to look ahead. I want to understand the past. And I think it was Churchill that said, the further you look back, the further you can see into the future. So with that in mind, you, you take technology and sort of set it aside and say, uh, for example, if you, if you take all the different types of technology, is there a common theme across them all? So if you think about ethics as a philosophical discussion on its own, as its own discipline, it really doesn't depend on any particular period of technology, a stone tablet, uh, printing press, the word processor. You know, you can go through all these evolutions of technology that generates content, speech, the record player, the recording device run now, Skype, social media. And there should be a common theme across them all. And there, ten there tends to be, and that's like, it's like quality might be another way to put it because it's easier for people to understand. No matter what technology you have, you want quality in that technology. So the ethical model you create needs to be independent of technology while also understanding that there's some significant change, which is why you call it a revolution of technology, right? So generally it's acceleration. There's some magnitude of speed or there's some uh, disruption that's caused. So you're creating an ethical model by first figuring out what those long universals are, like how are you going to measure quality in an organization, integrity, what are the things that matter to you, the value system, and then how do you measure them to see if you're trending on them. Um, and so when you say for big data or machine learning, you really have to understand what is different about that technology environment from where you were that requires different measures or even a different set of values. Big data is most famous for being faster. It really is supposed to be a, a performance gain, uh, velocity, although it also has two other values. People say you have more variety, 
And then you also get bigger volumes so you can pull in more data, more types of data. But ultimately, it's really about speeding up analysis. And so if you're truly building a system that's just giving you answers, then it's a knowledge system. And so an ethical model for knowledge begs the question of trust. Like, should you believe what you're being told? And that takes us right into our moral quandary that we're running into with pretty much every big data system. Should you trust Facebook? Is that fake news? Um, are they taking a, an ethical, responsible stance on their system, their platform? So that's basically how you create it. Interesting. So I want, I want to sort of look at something controversial here. How do you, where do you put consent into this model? For instance, if, if the goal of these systems from a technical perspective is to collect data and to speed up analysis, and then obviously as an individual, you'd be considered this sort of, I hate to use this word target, but how do you, how do you, you know, include consent? Is there consent to this? Because in, in, in a lot of circumstances, it almost seems like these, these sort of systems are being pushed upon people without, without their knowledge or and in some cases, you know, without active consent. So where do you put con the consent of the individual vis-a-vis -vis systems? Well, you know, when I studied philosophy, and I think that's one of the unique things when I'm in the tech field, is I, I went through classical philosophy training before I got into computers. In fact, I had people saying, what are you ever going to do with a philosophy degree or political science degree? But now in technology, you know, when people say, how would you deal with authority and consent? I think, well, I studied under this guy who is a Hobbesian. I think I'm saying that right. But he was an expert on Hobbes. And he used to always remind us that although the beginning of the phrase is life is nasty, brutish, and short, the, the rest of the phrase emphasizes that if you band together in groups, you have more uh, authority. And so, you know, consent, here's a great example from history. Consent in the United States often, you know, people like to think of individuals and there's a heavy, heavy emphasis in a lot of tech firms that are, quote, disruptive because they're breaking apart the authority that used to exist. They're, they're really emphasizing individual uh, liberty in their minds. But when you talk to them about what makes America great, I think a lot of them forget that the original, the original basis of the union United States was to band together, was to create a union. And so here we are saying we're the United States, we're in a union, and that's how we fought off the king. And at the same time saying, you know, it would be great if we got rid of all the unions. So I don't think people understand fully, you know, if they went through a philosophical training course, they would start to realize that there's all these trade-offs and you're constantly going back and forth on your own arguments and you're trying to find balance in the same way you might think of riding a bicycle. You don't want to fall one way or the other too much. You want to constantly be correcting back to the middle. And so, yeah, you want to have some associations on some level because it gives you strength, but you don't want to have too much association because it pulls you away. And so, for example, you get onto a large platform like a Google and you trust them for a few things, but they start doing things and you don't trust them anymore. But there's nothing like Google. Salesforce is maybe even even better example in terms of big data systems. Like 
once you get into a sales force, it's kind of hard to figure out where you would go to. And I hear that about Amazon as well all the time. So I think Amazon actually was famous at some point for saying, if you don't like us, then go find another Amazon, uh, which there wasn't, of course. So they kind of have you in a way if you get dependent on them because they're so big. And the way that you get power back in classical political philosophy is you band together and you create such a large voice that they have to listen to you. You know, enterprise is 70,000 people who are talking with one voice, the corporation. So I, I think a lot of the consent comes down to how we frame our political uh, organizations and how we, we really lean on a legal system as well, because if you can go in front of a jury of your peers, you're essentially having, you know, some built in way of appeal and uh, clarified authority to take your case. You don't have to get into a boxing ring and actually fight with, you know, Goliath and you have to be a David. So those are some of the, some of the ways that I think we need to start talking about these issues. But like I say, in the tech community, it's, it's often, um, very divided. I, I end up sort of filling the cracks sometimes between large legal groups and large technical groups and and trying to find ways that they can talk to each other or work out compromises. Interesting. So how do you, where do you build, where do you start with like a social contract in the sense of Google seems to be everywhere and these systems seem to be everywhere. Is there is there a possibility of developing a social contract that, for instance, I get to use Google and their their massive sort of ability to index data by the same token Google doesn't track me. Is there is there a possibility of a social contract between an individual and let's say Google or even a car company now they with all the you know software that they have in cars um is there a possibility of establishing a social contract a sort of give and take between an individual in a corporation. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the sort of uh, discussion a while ago where we started to use feudalism as an example and say, you know, well, aren't we sort of indentured servants or landed servants? Or, you know, aren't there barons and all these people who are lording over us and we're just on their their land, but we're trying to work for our own purposes. And it gets complicated because the more I read it about that period, the more I realized there's a lot of propaganda involved that we just kind of like bought into. So the French Revolution really kind of poison the discussion by making all sorts of assertions about what how bad life was before and why revolution was necessary. And so kind of what I learned from that whole experience, um, I mean, obviously I studied history too because I get really into it, but the, the experience taught me that, again, we're going back and forth on things. So let me give you the example of encryption. You know, on the one hand, we don't want any centralization in encryption because it's a choke point. It really does diminish our ability to control our destiny. If we hand over our fate, our keys, if you will, and managing them and the platform and the code to some authority. And then ultimately we have to always trust them. That scares people. And so again, we want this sort of highly individualistic solution. So the opposite of that, if we bounce the other end is you can't possibly set up a system that's so decentralized that it actually functions. It becomes so dysfunctional that you need some degree of commoditization and control and you know everybody moving in the same direction, standardization. And that requires quite a bit of sort of top-down view. 
so if you look at the 90s, I think a lot of people forget this, but like Joe Biden was instrumental in sort of scaring the tech community, scaring the crap out of them with like Kalela and these sort of uh, bills and stuff he said in the Senate, and the wiretap. And so Phil Zimmerman reacted by saying, you know, I'm going to build PGP and it's going to be this like, in fact, the whole RSA conference came out of this sort of period of they had to talk about like, what does key escrow look like? Are you going to give it to the government? And what does that mean? Do you trust them? And will they use it properly? So highly decentralized, almost no trust in any company was what came out of that. I remember very vividly when we talked about putting a key on the trusted modules in computers, you know, nobody wanted to trust Sony or Microsoft. It just sounded crazy to give them any sort of control like that because we thought they were going to use that technology uh, for DRM and immediately they would lock us out of copying movies and music and all that sort of stuff. So that trust really takes you down a dark, deep rat hole that can go on forever. But just to make the point again, that was where we were then. Well, fast forward and there's a lot of new people in the field and they have great ideas about how it would just be so much easier if we built a user interface and a centralized system and more people would use it. And it gets kind of misleading because their metrics are based on having a centralized interface. So everybody's checking in all the time. You have all these eyeballs on a platform. Well, we didn't do that on the old platform because we didn't want that metric, um, right? We didn't want to have like a big God view eyeball watching everybody. So they've already said that's okay. They want to go with that, right? So they're shifting us all the way on the other end of the spectrum. And if you bring it up and say, hey, shouldn't we go with a decentralized because it's safer? Like you're some old guy from the old, I remember when that they just think you're crazy. So we're still moving, I think, towards that other direction, but there will be a a reaction that'll take us back the other direction at some point. Hmm. So I don't know if that answers the question on how you build that kind of like trust and the, again, the balance. No, that's good. Um, I, I want to sort of switch footing and take us into more software engineering. Um, then I, I want to sort of look at the standards of software engineering and then compare it to building an infrastructure code in the sense of, how do you how do you build ethics in a, a system of ethics around code that isn't necessarily permanent and is always changing? So the example I like to use is like Windows versus the Golden Gate Bridge. So the Golden Gate Bridge is we consider it as something that hasn't changed for a very long time. And it's obviously there's building codes, there's safety codes, there's a lot of things that underlie the construction of this bridge. Whereas Windows, you know, you, you don't even have the same kernel from, you know, XP to Windows 10. And sort of my, my question is, is how do you build ethics? How do you build sort of these models when the sort of your, your code base is always changing? You don't, you know, what is in fashion or what is in, what is correct? 10 years ago isn't correct now or you know what is secure 10 years ago what isn't considered secure now how do you how do you even go about sort of creating you know ethics and sort of a model for ethics on on a medium for a medium that that is always changing well this is the ship of theseus um it's funny you bring up the bridge because I used to give presentations about the cloud where I would use the bridge as an example of something that's always changing. And I think, <laughs> and I think it's perspective, which is a lot of 
a lot of the problem. Like to the, uh, I don't even know that much about bridges, honestly. Uh, I know a lot about sailing, which is what bridges are modeled on. Um, strangely enough, bridge technology came out of the, the sailing ships. Uh, but when you think about the metals they're made from, the paints, the inspections, uh, I live near a bunch of bridges and I, and I see them constantly going from one end to the other. They say they start painting at one point and they, when they say get to the other end, they start over. So they're undergoing constant inspection and they have big fixes and small fixes. So I don't think it's fair to say they don't ever change. I think everything's proper engineering is constantly looking at things. So, and I mean, so maybe sort of to, to repropose the question is civil engineering, when you, when you train to be a civil engineer, you're given a very large, you, you know, I have friends who are electricians and friends who are civil engineers, and they have books, huge books that are dedicated to building codes, safety, and then your responsibility as an engineer to, to reinforce those sort of, those, you know, safety codes. Whereas I, as a programmer, you know, to create safe code, I don't even know what safe code is, to be honest with you. And then I'm given maybe, you know, um, application security, maybe secure C, and it's, it seems like there's a lack of sort of that sort of dense sort of technical work that would lead to ethical responsibility because it's, it, it almost seems like what you, you know, the, the technical aspect of it is always shifting and always changing. So you don't know, you know, you don't necessarily can establish that ethical sort of outlook. All oh, right. Right. So, so I actually teach a course on this to people in InfoSec because I thought maybe the best way for me to, to make a change. I mean, you mentioned not having, you know, that opportunity or not having a lot of ethics courses in, I don't think a lot of people do get these courses in their programs when they learn engineering, uh, computer science, I mean, that type of engineering. Uh, my approach was to just try it and see if I could insert myself into the process as a lecturer. And I've done it for a few years. It's been an interesting process. The first year I really went hardcore philosophy ethics. I went through all the philosophers and introduced the classes to their different philosophies I, I think I overestimated people getting excited about the topic the same way I was uh, because the feedback was basically like, how are we supposed to use this? They didn't see what I saw. So I backed up. Uh, I went back and I tried instead to understand what engineers are in IT different because I was an engineer for a long time myself. And I think you're right. You're exactly right. You know, what, what doesn't happen in IT and I actually went through this. I, I saw, for example, the, the I worked with a lot of people on uh, tandems and I, mainframes and mid-range systems. That was the era I came into, and we replaced them with client server, and they just thought we were crazy. You know, they thought we were just like cowboys, just shooting from the hip with no manuals and no guidelines and no real tradition of public interest. That's what they saw in us, and I think that's right. You know, I think they were reflecting on how we were moving faster. That performance gain was there. But we didn't have explicit responsibility that we had to protect people. Um, we just sort of assumed that we could recover so quickly that we were almost kind of like told public safety and reliability, you know, just figure it out. Well, if we have to pay, buy more, pay more. 
So it's kind of a disposable mindset. And it's continued. You know, we reached a point where everything's really just pick up and throw away. Look at the Raspberry Pi and the, um, the way that Google moved its entire infrastructure along the lines of don't even bother having things built to last. Just assume that you're going to be destroying and replacing them. So I think that's a fun fundamental difference. I think when you really are an engineer in traditional terms, then you're thinking about things like public interest. But, but also, I mean, to be fair, it's because the consequences weren't really there. We didn't have disasters. And that's really what drives a lot of this. So like in the course, I would give examples of disasters to sort of make the point of what engineering looked like in history. Uh, one of the best examples of that, I, I suppose I could have used bridges, but I used boilers. The steam expansion was how I was trying to frame the explosion of technology. And so by like 1890, there were hundreds of thousands of boilers just spreading across America. It's just like steam technology, like, like the computer, like the personal computer took off. And yet, you know, even though there's this huge growth, there were tons of explosions and these explosions were fatal and caused all kinds of outages. And, and so you would have thought, well, someone's going to lock that down, but that still didn't happen. You know, years and years went by, decades went by before we saw some massive, massive outages and, and disasters. And I think that's what we're seeing in IT now. People are getting really, you know, talking about pacemakers, they're talking about all these uh, to be honest, it's a logical fallacy to sort of beg the consequence all the time and, and just say, well, if we don't do this, then someone's going to die. I see that in the encryption uh, discussion, especially like you get on a large platform with tons of data, all these people. And if you don't agree, talk about consent, if you don't agree to do it the way we have provisioned you with this encryption app, then people are going to die. And there's no proof of that. Like they're not actually doing a scientific study of incidents which is kind of why I go back to the steam engines and or boilers. And I say like, look at the Grover shoe disaster in 1905 that flattened like two city blocks. And it's pretty well understood the mistakes they made. It's not really clear why, but it burned the place to the ground and killed everybody. And that changed engineering forever. Like most people forget, we don't know when talks about it anymore, but I think if you go through one of those courses and you get a book of guidelines to follow, then, then you start talking about that in IT. I mean, just to make a finer point, we've tried, like when the CISP came out, it was like the CISP certification for security was meant to sort of help InfoSec along the way of professionalism. But a lot of people really beat up on it as being bad and then didn't really help it get better. So instead of us moving from what you might say is like a high school equivalent, a GED to something more like a professional certification, we just started saying, a high school education doesn't mean anything. So don't even bother just skip ahead and you'll be fine. And I don't think that was really the best idea or I'm not sure it's not totally discussed. I think, I mean, the discussion's not over yet, but we need something. We need some way of sitting people down. That's what I'm trying to do essentially and say, here's your ethics guide for computer science. Um, this is what you should be thinking about. These are what disasters look like. And these are ways of balancing the different trade-offs because there isn't one answer that's going to fit or work for everyone. I, would, I mean, it seems to be the counter-argument is, and a lot of like my electrician friends make fun of me, right? Because it's like, 
if they mess up, the house catches on fire, people die. Whereas if I mess up, you know, a breach might happen. The understanding is that, you know, in InfoSec, it, it almost seems like a disaster is almost always non-lethal. You have a breach or a ransomware infection, nobody dies. Whereas it almost, whereas if an electrician messes up, the house burns down. If a civil engineer messes up, the dam breaks. Um, so my question is, what do you see as, to, to be sort of morbid, what do you see as that that lethal disaster that sort of changes our, our mindset? I mean, is it is it a matter of, you know, automated cars crashing into things? Is it a matter of, um, you know, some sort of attack on SCADA, on an industrial control system? I mean, what is... What is what, what is what is a disaster, an actual disaster, look like? Yeah, I mean, I love this topic, and I love this area of the topic because automobiles, cars are one of my favorite research areas. Um, I love car hacking, and I've been into cars since I was a little kid. And I think the thing that stands out for me is in all the research I've done in terms of this sort of like fatal accidents. And I've seen a lot of disasters. I've been in a lot of accidents, actually. I've been in a lot of pretty much on every vehicle type, motorcycle, um, cars, boats, bicycles. The thing that stands out to me now when I think about it, even when we're talking, is, you know, pedestrian fatalities have been like increasing year over year. And the data that we really put onto the street is overall fatalities have been going down because we sort of blend them in. So if you're in a car and you crash, the likelihood of dying is much lower because we put all this research and energy into figuring out how to make you live. But for people that are just walking on the street, there's almost no studies being done. And so what's funny about that is that was just an acceptable risk. And recently I, I even saw, I forget if it was South or North Dakota. I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it was. I hate to mix the two, but one of the Dakotas, was trying to pass a law that literally said if you're on the street and someone runs you over, even if they see you, it's your fault because you were on the street walking around. Um, it, it said like no liability for any driver who wants to run somebody over, murder them. Uh, no joke. And I, and I look at that and I think, okay, that's bad in itself that we sort of just accept that as a society that so many, I mean, there are tens of thousands of deaths and everybody knows someone who's died or been injured in this sort of situation. It's in the news a lot, especially in cities. Uh, it's a, it's a basically epidemic levels in some places, the number of people that are dying. And yet we just say, hey, well, that's just the price of having, you know, technology that we get to drive around in. So that's not my favorite model. And I think, how can we make that better? And to complicate it, you think about driverless cars, people start saying, well, we can solve that. We can just say, you know, cars won't hit people. But this is where the rub comes in. We can say that would be ideal, but we've already said as a society that we don't really think that's ideal, that we're willing to accept a percentage of mortality. And once you get software involved and you can actually flip the other direction, you could say, well, if my driverless car hits somebody and there's nobody driving the car and I program the car just to leave the scene, then what percentage of the time would I get away with it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're actually, you're actually significantly enabling. And this is what I mean about understanding how technology changes the same value system. The, the values aren't going to change that much, but the technology can dramatically change the risk 
So if we're, for threat modeling, I've done a lot of research on this myself in the cities. My impression is that the more automated the vehicles become, the more central the authority is, the more you have to put your trust in, and the more disconnected the feedback loops are, the more likely it is that these driverless cars will just go around killing people. I mean, why not? Because I'll give you an example. We have almost driverless vehicles already delivering packages. Uh, they're highly automated, and they tend to do all sorts of egregious things. They cause all kinds of problems in the neighborhoods. And that's mostly because you can't do anything about it as a neighborhood, like it's such a broken feedback system. Uh, you can go to the company and say, hey, this, this is terrible. And they say, okay, we took the number. Thank you. But you don't know if they're really going to fix it. And that's kind of the worry now is, you know, what is a, what does a terrible incident look like today? Well, lots of people are being killed. Okay, we're going to bring driverless cars in and we're going to depend on this, the quality of that software. And a lot of people in InfoSec really think about can I make this a highly available system, a trusted system in terms of just the integrity of the system working itself? But very few people I talk to are thinking about if that was a highly trusted system, would it actually prevent somebody on the street, uh, let's say a witness, from being able to stop the car from leaving the scene? Have you built such a hardened system that it's able to get away and commit crimes? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, I mean, on that note, I mean, I want to sort of make the picture a little bigger. Can we expect a profit-driven company to to be thought of or act ethically? I mean, would would Tesla or would Cadillac in your previous model sort of – they would include this in their in their thinking? Or, you know, in the case of Tesla, well, whatever, you know, one or two pedestrian accidents – you know, it, as long as we sell cars, that's all that matters, you know, and, and, and sort of to, to sort of add it on to this question, I mean, how could we expect tech companies to, to think and act ethically when on one hand you have a, a, a incredible centralization of data and then on the other hand, the ethos seems to be, you know, disruption, you know, everything needs to be disrupted, you know, it's, you don't need a consistency of ethics. You don't need a consistency of code. Disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. So, I mean, how do you, how can you, how can we include companies like Google and Facebook into our model when all they do is, the ethos seems to be disruption? Right. So the, the foundation of ethics, I think for me, goes back to when I was learning there, there's a, there's a bifurcation where you can decide whether the authority gets to control, you know, it's kind of funny, but this actually comes from the discussion of God. So if you go back into like classic philosophy, these guys are always talking about does God exist or not? And if God exists, is it a benevolent God? Why would God be good or bad? And so you just sort of transpose that into Google. Google's your new God. So if Google can control what's right and wrong, actually Facebook is a better example because they do lots of really bad things. And it's so provably true that they're doing bad things that the bifurcation is in an inherent right-wrong world, racism is bad. So if there's inherent rules that racism is bad, then you can say the authority is not following the rules. And if it does follow the rules, well, that would be good. But if it doesn't, then this is an unjust authority. But if you allow the authority to start defining what is right and wrong, 
then there's no way they can be bad because they just change the rules. And this obviously bleeds into political philosophy because you're talking about, you know, if you have an autocrat, they say, sure, it was genocide, but I write the rules, so I'm not going to prosecute myself. That would be crazy. So this is a this is the problem we're having right now in a lot of these big data ethics debates where the, the, these authorities want to be the arbiter of what's right and wrong in such a weird way. Like if you say, hey, I think there's a back door and I think people are exposed, they start saying, look, trust us that we've done the right thing, that we know what to do for you and we're really smarter and we have all these people who, and they just, they load up on, on logical fallacies. And it just breaks my heart that I don't want to go in with like a machine gun of like fallacy killing, but nobody likes really getting into deep philosophical debates unless they really like philosophy either. It's, it's I think troubling for a lot of people because you bounce around so much and take different sides, but that's kind of what has to happen. Like somehow we have to get to the point where we're able to build a system of inherent right, wrong instead of a controlled right, wrong. Um, that means regulation and that means a higher authority. And that means, the, the higher authority can be a group that bands together and decides. So it's sort of a loosely assembled, uh, bureaucratic, I guess if you will, but a loosely assembled uh, agreement of standards, or it could be someone gets assigned leader and they sort of pass the rule. They're representative of the group, like these old political models. Um, I mean, we went through hundreds of years of this <laughs> as political philosophers go through all this stuff and, and they can tell you like, well, this was Hobbes and Hobbes was wrong. And, you know, then we moved in the 1600s and then we moved into Kant and Kant had all these ideas of deontology in the 1700s. And so it's not like we're reinventing the wheel in a lot of these cases, but man, it scares me when I hear bad, bad things happening at Facebook. And I do speak out about them in terms of one of the worst abusers of big data. And uh, their response tends to be, we get to decide. Trust us. And that's a controlled right wrong. That's a that's the wrong answer. What, what we need is an arbiter of sort of an inherent. Okay. So I want. I don't know. If, oh, I'm, did I answer oh, go ahead. question? Oh no, it was good. <laughs> um, I want to switch over to sort of more stuff that's happening in the real world. I want to move away from our philosophical debate and get into um, things that are topics of controversy. So the first thing I want to do, first question I want to pose to you are is what what is the limits of freedom of expression here and and the example i want to use is the case of dylan roof so dylan roof uh, for those um who don't know is he was he's basically he's a 20 something year old white male that goes into a black church and shoots nine um people or kills nine people during a bible study so during his trial it comes out that um sort of the, the beginning of his action is so we don't we don't know if he was racist to begin with, we don't know anything about the beginning stages, but what we do know is he goes to Google and Google something like black crime statistics or uh, black on white crime, something like that. Some some string that like that. And so um, what it turns out what happened is that the first ten searches on Google are all fake, fake, exaggerated um, bent in such a way to make a um, alt-right or white supremacist viewpoint. And so my, my concern is, is you know, during the election period, we all saw, saw the uh, rise of fake news on Facebook um, and sort of 
you know, meme warfare. <laughs> I that's that's kind of a silly phrase, but um, what what are to return back to the question? What are the limits of freedom of expression in an online medium if ultimately Google and Facebook and Twitter are controllers of that medium, but you tend to spread fake news. I mean, even um, it just reminded of one Pizzagate, where apparently there was cosmic pizza in DC was a you know there was fake news spreading that it was a like a the center of a pedophile ring and then somebody you know took an automatic weapon into cosmic pizza saying you know I'm here to to investigate that pedophile ring which it turns out was not true but you know if if such the collection of data and the viewing of data is so centralized you know what what are some of the limits and not limits of freedom of expression here well, you know, it's it's funny. Full disclosure, I used to work at Yahoo, right? I was in charge of security for a lot of the different product groups, um, what you'd call IoT today, but it was a while ago before we used that term a lot. And we ran into a lot of this accountability, responsibility, liability uh, type discussion, especially with partners and stuff. You know, I said I like talking about the cars. Those are one of my favorite topics, and I really like that aspect of it, I think, because I've been in cars forever. But there's something about... Um, speech that's much harder. It's one of my least favorite topics, but I deal with it probably even more than uh, cars. And I, I think it's my least favorite because having been in the thick of it for some really complicated uh, decisions, and as a, a fan of philosophy, I do try to find that balance in the middle, and I end up uh, having a hard time navigating the two sides. Because when I go over to the, the totally free folks, I find them somewhat absurd in that they don't see harm ever. And it's like, it's like they're doctors watching someone die and standing by and not wanting to help because they say, well, they could probably figure out how to save themselves. You know, it's the sort of, if you have a sort of Samaritan mindset of any kind at all, you, you just don't want to be way out on that fringe and where you're just saying, well, just let all speech be free because you know harm is happening and you're not doing anything about it. But then I feel like I go to the other side and I get stuck because now people are making very sort of strange decisions about what speech is allowed. And they're shutting it down in a way that's very nerve wracking because they're controlling and uh, paternalistic. And so again, you really want to have something in the middle where you have guidelines and people sort of know what's within the bounds. Uh, basically, you use uh, negative examples. You say, this is really bad. You know, George Lakoff has a good book. When I, when I studied political science and philosophy, they, they made us go through linguistics as well, which really was like a propaganda course, if you will. And Metaphors We Live By is this crazy book back in the 80s uh, he wrote. And it gives you an idea of how propaganda can be so powerful. And I, if I remember right, his guidelines were something like, when you present something that's false and you want to talk about it, you first say, this is true. Then you say, this is what the person said that's said something wrong. Then you say, this is why it's wrong. Since you've seen the true and now you've seen what they said. So you can conclude. So I think when you're talking about search engines that are trying to take a step back and just say, hey, we're platforms and we're just delivering this stuff. It's almost like, and it's funny, Uber actually says to me all the time when I, I used to talk to them a lot more, but 
they say, we just want to be like water. I don't know who gave them this idea, but they're like, we just want to be like water infrastructure. And then I want to say to them, well, you realize they have to pr provide safe drinking water. Like safety is like huge because Uber's not safe. They cause all kinds of accidents and they cause all kinds of obstructions and they really don't care about the quality of flow and, and integrity. So if you think about these big data providers as utilities with social good in mind, the way a socialist might, I hate to use that word, but the way somebody who really is oriented around figuring out a social good, then you can't possibly sit back and say, this isn't our deal. And these are what my presentations are about, where I give examples of, okay, here's provable harm. We know this is bad. We know this is you know, causing abject problems. I mean, the Google example that I think a lot of people have seen is you search for professional hair and white women with straight hair come up, not a single diverse person. And of course, people ask me, well, isn't that the fault of the person searching? So that's, you know, blaming or shaming the victim because of your search preferences, you're being served certain views. But I'd, I would just set all of that aside and say, Google knows what a bad result looks like not just because of speed, of course, they have a performance metric that says this is too slow a result, but they also should be able to say this is a quality result. And it doesn't have to be all the way on one side, like we'll define quality. That would be controlled. We don't want controlled, you know, but we want some way of saying that there's an inherent and people agree, this is what the inherent good looks like. So show something that's representative and, and have feedback loops, of course, so you can measure against that inherent goal, like racism. I, I mean, my presentations have so many examples of all these mistakes people have made and why. But I do think there's a, a moral responsibility, an ethical responsibility. These companies have to take the lead. It, it's actually weird to me that I worked at Yahoo. I wasn't working on the main search core product. I was working on, like I said, the, the devices, the phones, the TVs, the home theaters. And we took a very active role on things making sure people got a quality experience. We didn't want you to get a phone that had such poor integrity that it could be uh, compromised and your data would be lost. So we had this idea of ethics around the quality of a device that would operate within a particular use case. We debated that extensively and we had lawyers and we had engineers and we had uh, government and everybody, you know, who could get in and why backdoors, all that. But if you, move over to search, suddenly they say, hey, you know, it's just kind of wild west here and we just sort of let it go. And that's just, that's never been right for me. I've always felt like you have to step in and do a bit more around that. And if you use Lakoff's model, you're really saying, you know, when people complain and they say this isn't right, what you do is you shift the discussion by saying, well, let's find a source of a trusted source. Let's move that up and then say, here's the right thing. Here's the view that's been disputed. And then here's why it's disputed. Wikipedia does some of this, right? This is a disputed article and so forth. But that, that's essentially what we should be getting to. Interesting. What happens to what happens to censorship then? If if you're centralizing all this data into Facebook and to Google, I mean, does censorship become more pernicious, more hidden? Because I remember, um, like when I was in traveling in Iran earlier in the 2000s. So you would have Time Magazine and you'd have objectionable material in Time Magazine. I, I shit you not, a censor would take a black marker and just 
let's say it was a picture of a woman with a low cut top or a, a little more revealing than what the sensor approved. He would just go through and black market. So to the viewer, that censorship would be obvious. You you look at it and say, well, obviously the the censor is having fun with a black marker. But in the case of Facebook, I mean, it seems like if, if Facebook and Google, if Google ultimately controls what you see when you search, and then Facebook can ultimately control what is popular, what is not popular, is there the threat of censorship? And is that something that, I mean, it, it seems like that should be part of the, the conversation of freedom of speech is that, you know, you're, you're putting so much trust that Google and Facebook are neutral arbiters of, of data, of whatever. You know, there are mistakes, but there is a high degree of trust with Facebook, with Google. And yet there have been examples of where they, they actively sort of censor or drop pieces of data from search. So, I mean, how do we deal with censorship in this case? How do we, what do we, how do we include censorship or do we not include it? Well, you know, I draw a lot from personal, ex from personal experience with this. And I think that's in a way it's fortunate because I have a ton of experience with a lot of different weird situations in a lot of different countries because it's very culturally dependent. Like you say, different places have different ideas of what's acceptable and not, you know, like, um, where I started, you know, I grew up in rural, rural, very small part of the, the country where there were guns everywhere all the time, guns, 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 but you weren't allowed to see skin. You know, it's like, oh my God, don't look at a piece of skin, but you should think about shooting things and killing them and, you know, <laughs> blood and cuts. And people's definitions of gore and, you know, offense and stuff, it's really complicated. I went through a lot of uh, classes around this topic, um, not just on this philosophical level, but also, like I say, in the propaganda level. So how would you change opinion? Uh, so, because it is very powerful, you can really move people along as we saw in the election. So yeah, th there's this responsibility and I, I guess there aren't any perfect solutions, but I let me sort of give you a couple of obtuse examples or, or slightly tangential. Like when people say, I don't see color to me, that's like an abdication that indicates a racist to me because they're refusing to deal with the fact that color matters by trying to say that they don't see any color, which is a noble thing to say in one sense, but they're also saying, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to pretend like there's no colors when institutional racism exists and there are people being affected by it. And you're saying, I don't see it. So in a way, if you're sitting on a search platform and saying, I just don't see it, you know, whatever you're reporting and complaining about, you know, I just see everything as equal results, whatever results are results. It's just an algorithm. You're not really recognizing or acknowledging that there's harm. So that's the first thing is to sort of allow people to center around whether they can validate actual reports of being harmed. What does harm mean? You know, what does it look like? And then from there, you can start to build a, an appreciation of why you want to deal with it and how you would deal with it. And so here's the other example. We had this problem. Uh, we had lots of problems. But one of them that will always stick in my memory was when married couples would split and they would say, I want to see the other person's data. Now, to our systems at the time, a marriage was a consummation in the sense that they were the same level of authority. 
if they split and had a dispute, you're essentially saying like censorship, I want to see into that. And we had to make the decision to say, no, you can't see that. We would censor them essentially, not allow them rights until they came back with a court order, you know, to say, this is your data, your data, because we couldn't as, as a huge entity that provided a platform or a service of all the data for this entire person's life. I ran into this, into this in universities as well. Like you would take in huge amounts of data, but then things would change and you didn't have the authority. The courts had the authority to decide who owned the data when one person split into two people. So then on this topic of, of data ownership, like what is a real name policy, a form of censorship? Like for instance, on, on Facebook, I think it's, I think Violet Blue on Twitter, she, she talks about this a lot where you, you have people who are, are sex workers or um, they're organizers and they don't use their real name. But Facebook is the largest way to get their name out, to organize and to bring about cases. But they have to use a pseudonym, obviously. But Facebook, by the rules of its medium, sort of say you can't use a – the way I understand it is that you, you have to use your real name. I, I put that in quotes because there, there, there's some sort of abstract rules to what constitutes real and what constitutes fake for that, that platform. But um, you know, in, in, this, in this discussion, I mean do you have a right to use a pseudonym and is it the right of the, the platform to sort of say, no, you cannot. I mean, is that a form of censorship? You know, how do we sort of think about this? Well, I mean, yeah. And the most, I mean, there's absolutely no question in my mind that Facebook abuses the authority. Like I said, they are very disrespectful and they take more authority than they deserve. So they decide whether people's names are real, which is not right. If someone's name is real and that's what they use legally and so forth, I feel like there have been many cases brought forth uh, that people said that's actually my real name. And they've just said, you know what, we don't think it is your real name or they'll ban them and so forth. So they've been a, a bad example on that case uh, for a long time. And, and I think this really depends on platform again. So it depends on what the data is you're using. A lot of big data security, especially around ethics, depends on the assets we're talking about. So for a lot of newspaper columns, for example, Anonymous comments can actually help encourage discussion, but I think most people found that it encourages more attacks and trolling. So they've moved to real names because the value of the real name is to keep people civil. Now, the value of a real name on, on a Facebook-like platform isn't as clear. It, it seems to be tied to marketing. So they make more money if they get names tied to real people rather than uh, pseudonyms. Um, so I would look at it that direction. Like what, what's the real purpose of the, the real name on a platform like that? What, what do they really need that's so important that they can say to somebody that it can't possibly be a real name? And so I haven't been particularly involved in that specific debate. Um, I, I've noticed, I've read a lot of the, the articles that have argued both ways and I think it's interesting, but I think it absolutely is a form of censorship. I mean, you can deny someone a voice by just saying that their name isn't real when it is, and they don't really have another option. <laughs> There's no, you're, you're basically asking them to try to come up with a real name that's more real than their name. <laughs> I, get, I get this, informally I get this in real world situations because I say my name's Davi, and people literally say to me, that can't be your name. That's weird. <laughs> so, again, again, this is a cultural issue. So, 
uh, yeah, I mean, I've had Indian people say it has to be Darby. It can't be pronounced Davi. I've had people call me Davi. Uh, I've had Catholics say it has to be at least two or three names. It can't be that short. What's your second, third, fourth name? Just, you know, every different culture you go through, they, they have their own impressions of what real identity should look like. And so again, it depends on the platform you're on. It depends on the environment you're in. It depends on the authority. You have to figure out who's going to be the arbiter, um, especially when you get name changes. An- another good example of edge cases is where you get uh, name changes. And then you get into birthdays and stuff where you, you expect a particular format of birthday, but if they don't have it, then you disable their account. And if they don't fit the formula, then they don't have a voice. So yeah, there, there's a lot of issues around identity and censorship for sure. Right. And there's protection, you know, it really is that some people need to have multiple identities, but it also goes to like, if you, if you create a situation where you have to use Facebook and there's no other option, then that's one of the, that's one of the main problems. Like, I don't even think that should be a a discussion. I think people should already just know that there's better places to go to take their data, but this has become one of the major ethical, uh, debate areas, which is, can you let a monopoly grow so large that there is no other option? And then you are forced to adopt their authority, like I talked about in the beginning, where they just say, find another Facebook, and you struggle to choose to leave because you don't have any other options. And so you're stuck with their policy, and they censor you. Okay. Or not even, not even censor, they may just sort of, um, well, I guess it would still be censorship, but I mean, they, they would just change your settings. I saw, for example, today somebody was publishing things and they were being set to private and they would say, no, I want it to be public. And Facebook would just automatically set their, their content to private. And they were struggling to get things published because the, the Borg was turning their stuff off and they didn't have a voice. And they were like, what's going on? So I want to sort of switch footing into um, away from, uh, uh, from the freedom of speech argument into reverse engineering. Um, we saw the sort of Volkswagen controversy that came up the last year, and I want to pose this question. Can the act of reverse engineering be thought of as ethical? I think one of the biggest, um, me personally, one of the biggest sort of the only time I've run into sort of ethical discussions um, as a student and as a professional has been around reverse engineering is that you need to be careful about what you poke, uh, what you poke and take apart is basically the sum of that conversation. Um, but in a world where software has sort of dominated every aspect of society, can reverse engineering, can sort of breaking something apart and finding its secrets have an ethical or a positive result? Oh, yeah. I, I've written a lot about this. Again, it's my favorite area, the, you know, cars. I love talking about the, the automobile transit um, devices. That they're, For me, they're augmentation. I mean, cars are like an exoskeleton that we step into. They're really the Iron Man, but sort of clunky and big boxes. But they're the Iron Man concept of that augmentation of the body to do amazing things. So reversing, you know, especially in such an awesome big topic, but Reversing is like right to repair. So in the long history of the United States, you know, if you go way back to the automobiles that began, they're pretty simple and everybody was making parts and they could manufacture their own. In fact, in some countries, you still find that people are making their own parts and keeping cars alive forever. But the United States, they shifted more and more towards a DRM model, which had an implicit sort of top down. We know what's best for you. 
to the point where some companies, I believe Tesla used to say this, I'm not sure if they still do, but I think so. You know, if you fiddle with your car, then you void the warranty sort of thing. You know, if you remove this label, then all bets are off and you have to take it to our dealer. You can't go to anybody else. You can't even go to a third party uh, engineer. So the, the concept of third parties that you'd like a oil change or a mechanic or something like that, you know, especially for like BMWs or special cars and having a whole career or a profession of people who just work on cars, um, third party suppliers of parts, all that sort of stuff. You know, that's a, it's an awesome market and you want to sort of, yeah, it's definitely ethical. I think to have that kind of market expansion and an open market is obviously going to have a lot more innovation. Muscle cars, you know, came out of that. You're basically talking about people saying, you know what I really hate about this? And then just going off and fixing it and taking to the track and testing it. And, you know, all the muscle cars that Detroit was building, I think came from them spying on people who were hobbyists <laughs> in some sense. So, but I mean, doesn't that, I mean, to, to circle back to our original theme, I mean, it seems like an incredible centralization over what you can and cannot do. I mean, a, an incredible centralization of control results in me as the end user being told that I cannot or can, you know, take apart something that that I rightfully bought. I mean, it, it almost, from a philosophical standpoint, almost changes the relationship of ownership. Right. It's, it changes the nature of control. I mean, it seems like, you know, I, I as a Volkswagen owner, you know, I just you just paid 15 grand for a car. Why can't I take it apart? Oh, no, it voids the warranty. I mean, it seems like. Ah, the, so here, here, here's the problem. And this is what I wrote about extensively. Like when I was a kid, I remember catalytic converters coming out and people saying, screw that. I'm taking that thing off as soon as I get it back. And. You know, when I ride motorcycles, a lot of them have had all of the emission controls removed. And I've talked to the state about this. I've said, why don't we get, you know, these motorcycles with their crazy pipes to actually like clean the air? Because they're causing horrible problems in our environment. You can smell them, the gas, everything. It's like the worst technology. And they're just like, there are too few motorcycles and it's just too much trouble. It'll be too expensive to try to clean it up. So if you open up that market and you just, allow people to sort of hack away, you have very little control, very little regulation over what the total impact is for decisions people are making. You can literally, you know, throw the environmental protections out the window because people are going to be on a different page. Environment's not, individuals are not going to be thinking about the environment the way that you could go to a Ford or a Chevy or a, uh, a Kia or somebody and say, for you to sell a car, you can't have emissions over this level because it causes asthma in inner cities. And it gets really, the ethics get really interesting because Tesla is a good example of this. If they drive around the suburbs, they're actually drawing energy from plants, which may be pumping in inner cities, you know, or neighborhoods. Like you still see stacks, for example, in some cities. So people are getting the pollution far away from where the drivers are, or people are driving on overpasses that are above uh, people's homes and so the, the, the people who live in these cities are getting dumped on by people who like to work on their cars. And I, I see that all the time in the tech community. I see people who buy fast, fast race cars. And then just because they can, they make them even faster by removing all of the uh, emission controls and make them illegal. And they drive around all the time with completely illegal emissions. 
because of power, they need to go from one block to the next. You know, they need to go 60 miles an hour between two blocks. So their incentives and their feedback loop is so different that this is the d- dilemmas you get into. If you open it up, you, you lose that ability to say safety is defined by a socially uh, acceptable level of cleanness. Now, in terms of the, the diesel, this is one of the things that bothers me is I feel like Volkswagen did a terrible thing, but they were among all these people doing terrible things. And I feel like there's a lot of politics involved in how <clears throat> there always is, of course, how regulations are defined. And that's a longer story. But what really should come out of it is that we should raise the bar significantly and use this as an opportunity to clean up all the uh, engines. And there's no way to do that at the individual level. Because right now, I mean, the whole tuner model is you, you cannot go out. I know this because I've tried. You cannot go out and buy a cleaner engine. <laughs> you can't. You can't go to the track and say, you know what, I'd really like to pollute less. <clears throat> then, I mean, is there a deeper philosophical question here? If, for instance, you know, we take the consideration that software has eaten the world, that everything that we do is touched by some form of software. I mean, in, in this case, is reverse engineering, does it give us clarity and sort of control over our surrounding world? Sort of like my favorite example is of the guy who reversed the, his teapot, his internet internet connected teapot on Twitter, um, and sort of a, a sort of through that sort of basic reversing of uh, the, you know his network capture his PCAPs, he sort of began to understand sort of the depth of you know comedically the horror of having an internet connected teapot. But I mean, to sort of go back, I mean, in a, in a world where software touches and consumes everything, you know, is reverse engineering sort of, you know, democratizing or sort of gives us clarity to, you know, how our world works. And in that sense, sort of, you know, produces this positive sort of ethical sort of understanding the world. Or is it just, you know, it's, it's something only hackers do, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the romance of hacking, and I feel like everyone in my family is a hacker. I was like reluctantly drawn back into hacking, but my parents, my grandparents, they were all really into this stuff, computers way back in the beginning even. Um, so I was always surrounded by people that were really pro-repair, pro-hacking, all the way on that side of the spectrum. I, like I said before, you know, you want an inherent right-wrong to sort of guide you. And so the romance of hacking is that you kind of have some sense of inherent right wrong, which isn't always true. So if you want to take the teapot as an example, there's not a lot that can go wrong with it. But if you're talking about a pacemaker or, I don't know, something that pe- someone's life is going to depend on, well, cars, you know, so if, if you allow people to work on their cars, then is there some way of knowing that they're driving an unsafe car? Well, you can pull somebody over if they don't have the brake lights. In fact, the third brake light was a a test that was done in San Francisco here. This guy just had this idea that he could stop the number of collisions by adding a third brake light. And within a few years, he was able to prove it by just doing these like crazy innovative tests by putting them on taxis and seeing what happened. And the the data showed that you had to have, you know, three lights and people crashed less. So an inherent right wrong in that sense is that if you don't have your brake lights, then people are going to run into you. Um, Yeah. And it's kind of funny because he had a higher level. Actually, he actually wanted the lights, if I remember correctly, to indicate 
how much you're slowing down. So the greater the intensity or the speed of the pulse, the faster you were slowing down. So he was advocating for a higher level of data distribution, back to the big data point. And people thought it would be too complicated, so they lowered to a more common baseline, a lower denominator, and that was just to have it on off. So that's why lights today just turn on and off and have no really sophistication to them. I mean, they could have all kinds of crazy stuff going on. The technology is obviously available. So yeah, you you can let people hack away and they can come up with great ideas, but you have to figure out where they're getting their right, wrong ideas from. And again, if you let them control it entirely, then they can never really be bad. And that's not really a good thing. Like you can say, I, I have a neighbor, I have a neighbor that built, he does this over and over again. He builds his own technology, everything from hand. Like I used to, I guess when I was growing up and man, he's dripping oil all over the street and on the other side, I have a guy who's working on everyone else's car, sort of under the table. Like people just drive up on the street and he lies on his back on the street and he works on their car instead of having a garage. On the one hand, this is good because these people are uh, innovating. I mean, he built motorcycles by hand from scratch and they're really cool pieces of art. On the other hand, he's definitely causing environmental pollution and he's definitely causing like noise pollution. And he's probably going to get into an accident because he didn't build it to spec and so forth. So he's living in that controlled right, wrong world where he doesn't really respect authority. And it's not good for really any of us except for him and his very narrow band of what he's measuring. So he, hacking has that romance of like knowing sort of an inherent idea of what's right and wrong. And a lot of times it's not right. Like it's outside the pale of what should be considered acceptable. It's a, this is the problem, you know, Again, with the balance, you try to go back and forth and figure out through some model of really smart people, authority, through some model of expertise, through some group having a say, and all of these tend to be logical fallacies. So, like, it's not right just because Einstein says it's right, just because he's Einstein. But on the other hand, it is right just because Einstein said it's right. So, you know, this is the problem. Uh, depends on how you're talking about the topic and what you're talking about. So with that, I want to maybe dwell within something incredibly controversial, which is, uh, I'll pose the question to you. Um, can a backdoor be thought of as ethical? And I think this, this came out in the sort of the, the Apple controversy with the San Bernardino shooters. And um, if I remember correctly, there was a, a lady, Susan Hennessy. She's on Twitter, obviously, but... Um, she was on a TV program. She she posed the argument like this: You need a backdoor on on certain on these phones because they're mass marketed, and, and in some cases, um, and, and she cites a murder case where um, if you if you didn't have the backdoor, you wouldn't be able to access the phone, which means you lose a clue and you lose your ability to solve this murder. And in that sense, you know, on the other side of the argument, you, you have this idea that if you start backdooring, you know, cryptography, if you start backdooring the security measures on a phone, then the ability for a government to basically violate freedom is near infinite because how many iPhones do you have out there? Um, how many times is this cryptography algorithm applied, you know, et cetera? So my question to circle back to the question is, you know, how can it, can we think of a backdoor as ethical, you know, in cryptography and security systems, wherever? 
Well, yeah, I mean, again, you get into these weird, crazy fallacies. Like, if you define a backdoor as the thing that solves crime, then you've just tautologically defined backdoors as <laughs> solving. And then if you, and then if you define them as solving crimes that save lives, you beg the consequence that's so great, of course you would want a backdoor because you've solved crimes and you've saved lives. And it goes the other way too. I, I find, I see these cryptographers say, if you don't get rid of backdoors, people die. Uh, and I try to get away from this. I, you know, I again try to put myself in the perspective of the people uh, and having been a practitioner on all sides of this equation, again, which I think is very rare. You know, I've helped build the products, I've assessed the products, I've broken the products, tried to get around the products, you know, so I've tried to live on all these different angles. If you put yourself in just one set of shoes, like I try to look at it from the cryptographer, they look at it like the way you might look at slavery, like, which I think is a fairly good example, actually, because slavery is, you know, the sort of unequal concept of, of relationship. You are in essentially in both you're, you're under the control of somebody and you have no way of getting out of that control. And so the back door is uh, something you should abolish. You, they just look at it and they say, why wouldn't you abolish slavery? And I think everybody can agree. Well, obviously it's debated in the don't even get me into the Confederate South and stuff, but the, the idea is that if you sit in the shoes of the person who's trying to build the product to protect people from having someone take control of them, that they don't want to, then it makes a lot of sense to never have the back door. Now, if you just get out of those shoes and you get into someone else's shoes and you say, your job day in and day out for thousands or hundreds of thousands or even tens of millions of users is to help them get their job done. And they want a reasonable level of protection, but they also don't want to be in a state of denial. They, you know, something break down and they can't get their data or they lose it forever. Can you get in to help them? And so you put in a back door with their consent so that you have the ability to go in when necessary and their appropriate controls that let them know when you went in and so forth, you know, then it just makes perfect sense. I mean, why wouldn't you have a back door? Um, so, it, it, oh, but how, well, does that, <laughs> how does that work if you have something like WhatsApp or Telegram that literally their marketing is, you know, you know, we're secure messaging like what I don't understand is that you're saying that it's, you know, a backdoor might be okay if the end user consents to it, but, you know, the premise of joining WhatsApp or Telegram is that it's, you know, secure, but yet, you know, the idea is, you know, they might have a law enforcement backdoor or they might have, as, as you pointed out, um, I lost my password sort of backdoor, you know, to access my, my user data. But I mean, how do we, how do we sort of, negotiate consent and and sort of marketing when the marketing says you know whatsapp telegram signal you know whatever is secure and you know has no back doors but there might be a back door shrug you know? yeah well so it's it's like vulnerabilities i hate it when they say there's no back door because it's like saying there's no vulnerability i mean you you really should say there's there's no known backdoor if you want to talk about it like it's a vulnerability. I think that's much more fair and effective. But but I think the larger point here is, like I was saying, you're talking about people who are using backdoor in, in different ways. The, the term itself is being used in such a vast spectrum of meaning that it, it's very difficult to talk to each other. Because if backdoor means slavery, the chains of slavery, then 
you're just going to be on the abolish side all the time because it's such a moral imperative to not do it this way. But if the back door means you can't have a hotel or a restaurant running because the back door is where all the services are able to do their work to provide the food and the bedding and the everybody, you know, back doors in the service industry are very common because they serve a very important purpose and there's all sorts of reasons to have them. So eliminating them for the gain of being sure of who comes in the front door isn't always such an easy established answer. So that's why, you know, you have to, I feel like you have to put in that spectrum because when I talk to people that freak out about the idea of a back door, I feel like they just haven't been in the role of having to support people. <laughs> they, uh, and in fact, I've found that people back off significantly. We found this all the time when you get into the, the very large numbers, like when we have a 10 million users, and we had a small error, and we had, uh, let's say, 10,000, a small percentage of the users had this issue, like they lost their, their key and their data. The cost of one day could be hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to sort of fix the problem that we just caused by screwing around with the level of security. By raising the security bar, we just gave ourselves a, a huge bill and support cost. And when you get into those situations, you're kind of like, mm, where's the trade-offs here? And unfortunately, a lot of times you're making the trade-offs for easier support, which the users don't know, and that's where it gets really sticky. We saw this with Google with the service reliability engineers who actually had, literally had the ability to go and listen and watch and see everything that people were saying and doing. And that was kind of a shocker because at Yahoo, we had really different controls. We had thought about it and probably been in trouble before. Maybe there was a, an incident or something that had predated it. But you get into a situation where you think about ways to make it possible to both provide the service and provide the assurance or the guarantee. And that gets back to the balance thing. You're not going to be in that balance discussion with somebody who sees it as slavery because they're just going to be on the abolish, abolish, abolish. And it's hard to argue with that if that's really what they see it as. But again, you're in a fallacy mode there where you're begging the consequence. You have to prove it really is slavery. You have to prove that there's deaths happening if you don't get rid of it. Otherwise, you're just dragging everybody into this consequence that might not actually happen. And if, without the data, you know, you're, you're dragging people along on a false pretense. So it really is about measuring um, and understanding what you're protecting, uh, what the costs and trade-offs are. So backdoors are a very complicated topic and it's so difficult to like try to get in and, and discuss them because you do end up with people that have the sort of moral imperative mindset um, or, or even people that say, leave it to us. We're, we're the smart ones here. You know, cryptography is hard and stuff like that. It appeals to authority and stuff. Bruce Schneier said this, and here's a funny story about Bruce Schneier. I sat down to lunch with him. Uh, I was talking to him and I was like, look, Bruce, I have to work in encryption all the time. It's like weird to me because my background is in this sort of social science and understanding how people think and knowledge-based systems. And, um, but I'm, I'm working with like key management and identities and, and stuff that's really getting into math, which wasn't my background. It seems like everybody in my family was studying this and I tried to get away from it. So I was like, Bruce, tell me why you don't, just, <laughs> why don't you just do all the work so I can like go do other stuff? Why don't the cryptographers do the work of that? And, and he said, oh, no, 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 it's not like that at all. So the problem is we've solved all the difficult math problems, which I guess is kind of an insult. But I mean, he was saying like, <laughs> you know, the hard math problems aren't, 
are done. And, and the, the harder problems now are the human problems. You know, we're trying to solve all the user stuff, which I guess was a compliment because he's saying the stuff I was working on really wasn't math. True. It was much more about how to get people to use keys properly and how to figure out social connections, centralized, decentralized, and what exchanges would look like and what trust would look like. And, you know, one of the most interesting things that came out of the controversy around the recent backdoor flap is the argument that if you acknowledge the key, then the server sending it to you would know that you acknowledge it or not. And that was held up as an argument that if the server knew whether you acknowledged you had the new key or not, it knew something about you, which would effectively change the, the threat model because it knows whether you've accepted the new key or not. It can uh, effectively change whether the man in the middle is more likely or not to work. So these are the sorts of assumptions that get kind of like hairy and complicated. And it's like the easy answer is for us to think about them in a room with a bunch of smart people and say, I think we got this. I, I mean, it feels good that we came up with an answer, but I, I think the harder way is to actually sort of measure it and to try to anthropologically understand what really is happening among the users um, to come up with a better answer. And the danger there too, is you get these sort of statistical or economic models that are putting everybody in a basket and saying, well, we have, you know, a million people and 99% of them like it this way. So screw the 1%. But the 1% happen to be the executives. <laughs> it's your CEO, or it happens to be the president of the United States. So you can't just say you're a minority. We're not going to serve your interests, right? So you get this political balance and decision around what good behavior, normal behavior, what trade-offs for what groups, yeah, so, so it really isn't math. It much more is a social science. And, you know, Bruce was right. It, it's harder. But I also think it's it's interesting that the guys who are working on the crypto are rushing over into a social science space. And it's social science people are sort of rushing over to understand the, the math of it all. Uh, and it's not really I haven't really seen a good balance. I haven't really seen a, a, a really good meeting of the minds in the middle yet. I think it's happening. It's better, but it's it's still a bit of a nervous show. I guess I could put it like this. When I used to race sailboats very, very competitively, at the end of the day, I felt like I could come in with all the competitors because they were all really top sailors, top competitors who were like very comfortable in their skin. And we would just go around the room and see what we did. And you could say, I just did it this way. Even if you thought it was wrong because you knew everybody was going to give you positive feedback and it'd be sort of like a sharing of ideas to everybody becoming better sailors, which was cool that you're competing against everybody, but also sharing. And that raises the bar. I'm, I don't always feel like we're doing that in our discussion of how to fix a lot of these problems. The Usenix conference and you know Enigma conference and stuff, I think, are going in that direction. But a lot of times there's some real difficulty. I think people are sort of feeling like, I don't want to step forward because then there's a lot of shaming and naming and are seeing that already. I think people have actually even said the reporter who suggested that there was a backdoor should lose his job. I'm going to talk about censorship. Right. So, so I mean, before we get into uh, sort of how to teach ethics to engineering students, that was going to be my last question. Um, I wanted to sort of ask you about, um, so it's a big controversy, uh, especially in the CVE sort of field, the countering violent extremism and, and sort of um, policing field, which is predictive policing. So there's a company called Predpol, 
um, and they, they sort of speak to this issue of creator bias in a technical system in the sense of when they when they deployed Predpol and then when they deployed these sort of big data approaches to policing, what they found out is that it sort of reinforces the bias. That is, the bias was that there's two bias, two levels to this, which is uh, more crime occurs in black neighborhoods, so we're going to enforce do more enforcement actions in black neighborhoods instead of saying crime is a citywide problem. So you would only have enforcement in these certain neighborhoods. And the second thing it was sort of, I think this was on a ProPublica, which was you're automating sort of using big data and sort of um, sort of the application of sentencing, which also happens to be, which also happened to sort of reinforce bias, which was if you were a black person living in one of these black neighborhoods, you were in your network was more crime, so therefore you should be more of a criminal. So to sort of circle back to my question is, how do we look at or rid or reduce creator bias in these systems? Or is or even am I incorrect in saying there's even a creator bias in these systems? Oh, yeah, there's absolutely bias. Absolutely. There's no question there's bias in these systems because they're you know, developed by people in environments with assumptions. Uh, they're very much learning, as the word implies, like humans learning, are drawing from data sets. And there's a sort of like fantasy about the larger the data set, the more perfect you become, which is not typically true. Um, you can become incredibly intelligent. You can be the smartest person in the world. And I can break you with some very simple social engineering tricks. Um, I've given talks about this, how the most intelligent people are still very vulnerable to the simplest tricks. Racism is a good example of that. Racism is a bias that is exceptionally easy to manipulate. Um, if I want to infiltrate a racist group, I become like the racists. And they acknowledge and accept me, even though they're very intelligent otherwise. Because racism is basically a form of blindness. It's like sort of a, a form of dumb or... Uh, inability to see. So these sort of cognitive biases we have. I mean, when I talk about this, I guess, to your question about the policing, speaking of racism, you know, that system, I didn't actually look at why I did it, but it was labeling criminals that were black at twice the rate of whites. And if I remember right, it was always biased against these black defendants, it was scoring them wrong. So you know, it, I didn't, like I said, I didn't look into the system specifically for why I presented on it and just to tell people what was happening. But it reminded me of a system that was designed for FICA score, where I did talk to the people that built the system. And they talked a lot about how the hidden layers are opaque to them. And when they fed the data in, no matter how much data they got, they didn't know what happened. And the government said to them, <laughs> holy crap. I, yeah, the, the government said, we know that your system is highly, highly accurate in its prediction, but we don't know if it's not racist. Can you prove to us that it's not doing something that would be racist? And they said, we don't know because when we put it in, it goes through so many hidden layers. And that's just, you know, what you basically do, especially if you have sort of adaptive learning and the system's trying to like learn on its own, unrevised, you kind of lose control in a, in a way that you could end up with very racist results. And you've seen this in several very high-profile examples. You, you know, you saw with Amazon, they were just delivering to certain communities. 
And they were saying, we're not deciding that we're not delivering to the black neighborhoods. That's just how the data worked out. And, and this is where it comes to, to me to be a sort of obvious problem that you can fix. If you have a known bad, like you're not delivering to black neighborhoods, and you even get one or two complaints that say, hey, why aren't you delivering to black neighborhoods? This is where you can sort of jump in and say, well, obviously that's not how we should be running this operation. We shouldn't be just excluding people based on race. And that does appear to be what we're doing. I think they called it prime ethnic composition. So, yeah, they, they were saying we don't have ethnic composition when we're drawing the map. So I'm not sure why we always end up with these sort of racist outlines. That, this to me is where augmentation is a much better model than full automation. So if you're using big data intelligence system, having that oversight is, is so essential in complex environments. And when I mean complex, I mean like things that the computer doesn't realize, doesn't understand the environment it's in, doesn't understand that there's been a history of racism, for example, that goes back, uh, that was institutionalized and unfair. But the human can see that the computer, because it doesn't understand that that was something in the data and it's running and pulling it out, you can correct for that or try to figure out how to make it. That understanding the environment is one of the most powerful concepts that people have to get to. Context matters so much. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, with that, I mean, I want to, I want to sort of ask you, you know, how do we teach ethics to engineering students? Is it, like it almost seems like every answer that you've provided almost seems like it could have been solved or better managed if there was an interdisciplinary approach in the sense that um, like I like like almost like jokingly pairing an anthropology student with an infosec student or pairing somebody who understands history with an engineering student. I mean, you know, how do we how do we begin to teach ethics to engineering students? And, and sort of a sub point to that, is it is it necessary to be interdisciplinary in the approach? Yeah, I, I, there's no question for me that interdisciplinary is better. Um, you know, it's funny, we're talking about learning systems and how more data would make them smarter, which isn't necessarily true. Like, you can take the most successful computer science student and just fill them with more and more computer science perspective and it doesn't necessarily make them better because they don't have the little bit of data or context they needed to make the program work in the environment that they live in or are working in right so that little bit of uh, additional data is what made the difference not the sheer quantity of one type so making sure that people have some sort of balanced perspective is always good the question is who decides that balance or how to get it and our our solutions typically have been to our commoditized systems tend to be, you know, here's a, a YouTube video or here's a, a book or, and I think those are fair solutions. And that's what I've been trying to do actually for the past few years, like for one or two days out of the year for a course, we come in and we just talk about ethics and that's it. And the first time I did it, like I said, I was heavy on the ethics and they were just like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand how to fit your big puzzle piece into my puzzle. And so I've reshaped it to where it, all my examples now when I'm going through the, the process are much more applied. They're much more hands-on. Things that I ran into, you know, in, in my 12 months of working in, in tech in the past year, here's what I've run into. How would you solve it? And I kind of quiz them through 
and sort of, in a way, it's a Socratic method. I sort of fight them through uh, the topic. So they learn two things. One, they learn the philosophical approach where you bounce back and forth and try to find the right middle by challenging yourself and others. And then, because that's a, an essential approach, you have to really teach that so people are comfortable with it. Uh, I think it helps a lot in that sense to understand how to, to grasp history and philosophy and politics, economics. But the other thing is they actually learn the, the data. Like to say to somebody what Rene Descartes really meant by I think, therefore I am, and then put it in the context of, okay, I'm, I'm booting this machine up. Is it thinking? Does it really have cognition, right? Or to talk about how, because that was in the 1600s, the early 1630s, and then to talk about how that was insufficient for someone like Locke, who said, no, no, you can't just say, I think, therefore I am. I mean, that's, that's establishment. That takes away control from God, di- dictating everything you think and everything being decided by religious authorities. So now you can actually have independent thought, but to actually be able to have a reflective process and go through these articulated steps, that's transparent that people can verify, you know, that's not much later. That's only 50 years later or so, but John Locke like changed the game. So I'm teaching them how to walk through an IOT device. What are the ethical considerations? And they ask really hard questions, you know, like if this device, I was in Austria and, and they would say like, well, if this device would give away the fact that I'm hiding Jews, you know, should I destroy it? Right. Or should I turn it off or should I allow people to have a back door? So we do real world scenario situations like that for devices. But then I also say, Hey, think about the actual people who thought through these things in the past, not with this technology, but with earlier technology, because not everything changes. Some things continue. I think you brought up that book, um, weapons of math destruction. Yeah. So, you know, it's a good example of where, man, I read through part of that and I actually uh, listened to a few of her talks and I was, I was like, yeah, you know, I love the idea of the topic. I'm on the same page, but I was like, no, this is like such a mathematical, cold, unapplied approach. And I think that's an example of where she's not using the interdisciplinary approach and it comes through so clearly. Like when she says, her example is, you know, Netflix is safe. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like Netflix is not at all safe. (laughs) What you watch is hugely sensitive, uh, can mean a lot. It can mean life and death. We know that uh, from what people are monitoring on networks to see what you see and what you like and what you don't like and when you're around and what you're doing. So, yeah, I, I I don't feel like she took an applied approach at all or a philosophical one where she would challenge herself and say, or is Netflix really safe? Could I do something the way a hacker would? You know, like, could I? A hacker would have done her a lot of good. Um, I've actually, you know, to be honest with you, I've sort of noticed that, like, at, at work, like, our machine learner, like, machine learning team, is, they're so brilliant. Like, PhD, you know, master's degrees in math and, like, just this top shelf brilliance. And it's, when I talk to them, like I'm coming from a background of being self-taught and sort of the hacking background, and it's like, like you point out some some examples where you could easily subvert what's going on, and it's like, I never thought about that because you know they've only approached the problem through, through math, through physics, through, you know, PhDs and and things that I I, I could never you know understand, but you know hacking and and breaking things I do understand, so uh, I I, I kind of begin to understand you know, at least in the corporate environment, how, you know, that interdisciplinary approach, the, the combining 
you know, the computer scientist with the mathematician, with the hacker, with somebody with a humanities background is, is sort of essential. <laughs> but I, I want to, I mean, sort of in the reality, sort of the real situation, I mean, why is it, why are people so slow to approach this, approach it as an interdisciplinary issue? I mean, it seems like, you know, humanities are sort of, in Silicon Valley at least, it seemed to be derided. Oh, you know, you you have a, a master's degree in religion, you know, or you have an undergrad degree in, in philosophy. Well, what do you know? I mean, it seems, you know, we, we sort of discuss this interdisciplinary approach to, to teaching and learning, but it seems like the reality of it is the humanities people are sort of derided and sort of mocked while, you know, the programmers and the coders and the, the sort of, you know, traditional software engineers are sort of put on a platform. I mean, how could we implement a a interdisciplinary approach in a corporate environment, in an environment where, you know, you can affect a lot more things? Or is it just a matter of just getting them in the classroom and hoping they, they make the right decision later? <laughs> no, well, you know, all these things come from demand, really. And so... I you, you get a natural interdisciplinary approach in environments that realize the groups, well, when you have large enough groups, they have people that sit between them. So people that sort of bridge the gaps um, in small environments, then people just have to learn all the hats. So when you run your own business, for example, it's like the definition of different disciplines. You, you have to be your own accountant. You have to be your own marketing. You have to be your own. So you're forced into learning all those things. So I, the question really becomes what forces people to, to realize the value. And I think that's where we're having a, a shortcoming is we allow people to, for example, release a product that doesn't have ethical considerations. And then we just kind of say, eh, you know, it wasn't worth it. We come up with excuses, um, a lot of fallacies again. And we, I, I see this when people say, you know, it doesn't seem like you made the right decision. It doesn't seem like it's safe. And they immediately say, well, <laughs> back to controlling the ethics, they say, well, you know, I made the decision. So I don't feel the pressure to really go and learn what I need to or talk to somebody because if I can decide what's moral, then that's that. So I think that's a big part of it is we need to have some way of uh, generating or feeling that pressure, that demand for having the, the better cross-disciplinary approach. That would be a, a big help. But I mean, I find her writing on the right path. Like I want everyone to think, you know, we could do bad things. I really think by just accelerating the wrong decisions, you can definitely cause a lot of harm. There, nothing proves that like pollution, like by just putting faster and faster cars on the road that generate more and more harm, you're killing everybody and maybe even the planet. And, you know, we, we knew that when we started and there are all sorts of people that were saying there are all these bad things. Cars shouldn't drive fast. We should put speed limiters. And, you know, other people just laughed at that. And they said, why not just just keep going faster and faster and just accept the, the deaths and accept the harms, accept the pollution. And, you know, people who are interdisciplinary would have said, well, I come from a different pers perspective and I say, environment matters. Or let me tell you about the long term. You're focused on short term. And in, in my area of understanding is long term harm or anthropology, understanding the, the culture and how it's going to change. So if we allow people to really measure and push back and provide feedback in a larger perspective, then I think we'd get that demand for the, the different disciplines being involved. I think that would help a lot. I mean, that's why I teach these courses, why I give presentations about what sucks, because I feel like people are in such 
bubbles, I hate to use that word, but really they are. I mean, when you hear companies push machine learning and big data in a direction that they say, ready for production, you kind of want to go to them and say, you know, you measured like one of 50 things. And so when you call it ready, you're like still in dev, you know, you're not really looking at the right thing. Uh, one of my favorite recent examples is where this Cambridge company said they had this segmentation algorithm that would look at the world and break it up. And they were in Cambridge, UK. So they had pictures online you could put in. And every time I put in like an English picture, it figured out road, tree, uh, lamppost, person. And then I went to their former British colonies, not to be too cruel, but I went to someplace that we you would think would have something in similar. I didn't have to, well, I guess what I'm saying is I would start on a continuum and I would say, let's move outside your comfort zone to a, a place that you used to have a association with like Botswana before I go into like China or someplace you don't have anything and see if it can recognize. And it failed miserably. Like it failed m more than 50% wrong, dangerously wrong. So they were saying we have 90% success, but they were testing an environment that was really comfortable for them that, Again, you know, this I think is why hackers are so relevant because I wouldn't say exactly that it's a discipline on its own, but it's a way of thinking that challenges any discipline it touches. It really comes in and says, let's break it down. Let's, let's not think like that. Let's be uh, creative in how we bounce around and just disrespect the authority. That's also, I was kind of bullish when, when people said that, the driver is responsible for the death in Tesla's case. I went and dug in and I got into that guy's shoes and I tried to see it from the perspective of where he was coming from. And he put so much trust in that company and he believed so much. And the CEO was basically messaging him personally saying, yeah, go man, go. And he basically let the car make a decision it shouldn't have made. So the final decision came out and everyone's saying, well, he made, that was his fault. But ultimately he was just ahead of the game. He was moving down a path where he really believed uh, and they weren't listening to him properly. And I mean, they didn't realize that I think the, well, they did realize. So it, it's, it's a really complicated case, but all the research I did to me says, and I still say this, uh, that car decided to take the one path that would kill him. It could have made a bunch of other decisions, but the way the car was programmed, it made the one decision that killed him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I really feel like that. I'm not saying you have to bring charges against Tesla. People ask me that and stuff. That's, I think that's a little further down the line, but I think you have to look at it. If you want to be realistic again, from an interdisciplinary approach, from my perspective as an outsider, if I came in and said, here's my criteria and how I would look at it. I think they made a machine that their user had the impression he could trust in making a decision that was way beyond its capability. And so in an edge case, it actually made the decision to kill him. Not knowingly, you know, that's another whole discussion area, but I think it did make a decision which was the least likely for him to survive. Wow. <laughs> uh, on that note, um, you know, before we go, um, usually we always like to ask our guests to give us something to, to think about, to chew on. Um, so if you can give us a, a question, an idea, something to, to think about, you know, for the next time. For the next time. Well, I mean, I hope the Tesla case is worth chewing on. 
<laughs> they say it's decided, but I think, you know, I think people should really dig into that. I, I think for me that the thing that I've been struggling with lately the most is this idea of hit and run. If we enable machines, especially drones, if we enable flying machines, which go into a, you know, the three-dimensional axis, they don't, they're not restricted to roads or networks. They can really just fly anywhere, anytime. And we don't have a way of stopping them, a really effective way of, uh, or, or even a decision tree of who should stop them. Um, you know, I run into this myself. I was going to start shooting down drones and I talked to lawyers and they said, you're destroying property and all sorts of people are going to get angry at you and it's going to be horrible. But I, I was really thinking, well, if I, if we don't have this technology and I don't know how to do it, then when it commits a crime and gets away with it, uh, you're essentially just opening the market up. Like you look at all the problems we have on the internet and ransomware and so forth. You're, you're just taking that whole nother level of easy money for people who abuse the rules and we have no way of stopping them. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, being on the show. Um, with that, that was uh, Davi Ottenheimer. Um, we, we greatly appreciate uh, your views and your, your ideas. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me again. Of course.